Now, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and we're reading in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using a church Bible, it's on page 1161, 1161. And I want to read in from the 10th verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 10. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The big word in this passage at the end, of course, is reconciliation. And the verses that precede those closing three verses are really the color behind Paul's desire to preach this message of reconciliation And you can tell how important it is to him. In a sense, it defines how he thinks about himself. He is, he says, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And because Christ has made him an ambassador, he is simply passing on the message Christ has given to him. Ambassadors don't make up their own messages. They pass on the messages of their president or their king. And this is how the Apostle Paul sees his ministry. He is an ambassador 
of Jesus Christ, and His message is a message of reconciliation. We implore you, be reconciled to God. God reconciled the world to Himself in Jesus Christ and entrusted to us, verse 19, the message of reconciliation. Now, here is a question. If reconciliation is the solution, what is the problem? If reconciliation is the solution, what is the problem? And the answer is fairly obvious, isn't it? If reconciliation is solution, the problem must be alienation. Some of you would have noticed in the last few days that the great Oxford English Dictionary has just announced the word of the year. Forty-five percent more people this year have looked up this word on the Oxford English Dictionary website than they did last year. And the word, interestingly, is toxic. It is the Oxford English Dictionary than which there is, of course, no greater dictionary except perhaps the Scottish National Dictionary. (laughs) Toxic is the word of the year. But if you were asked, uh, some of you were not alive in those days, but if you were asked, so what would you choose as the word of the 20th century? Not just the word of the year, with an exponential increase of use, but the word of the 20th century that had an explosion of use. Actually, I suspect that word is the word alienation. It was a word relatively infrequently used until the 20th century, and then there was an explosion of its use. Some of us most familiar with it because of the philosophy of Karl Marx and the various principles of alienation that he felt were the true analysis of man's situation, and in terms of the workplace, the worker's alienation from the fruit of his labors, the fruit of his labors going to the shareholders, going to the bosses, and your ordinary man in the street being alienated Unlike the farmer, the agricultural worker, the man who worked with his hands as a carpenter in past days, the great problem, said Karl Marx, is this alienation. There's many different manifestations. And then, of course, it became almost a hallmark of discussions in psychology, people suffering from alienation. It produced a whole genre of English literature. Uh, people alienated from themselves. This was, it seems to me, the big word of the 20th century because it was the experience of so many people in the 20th century. And for all I know, it could be an even bigger word in the 21st century because there has been an exponential increase of that experience of alienation. Alienation of who the person is, alienation in family, alienation among the nations, political alienation. We could well imagine it would be the big word that would span this century as well. And the Apostle Paul agrees. He said, it is the big problem. It is your 
big problem. That's his message. But he sees himself as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and he wants to tell us what the solution is. Of course, even before you think about the solution, you need to know that you have a problem. And many of us in this kind of situation are very much like many of us men are when we go to our GP and we say to him, I know it's nothing serious, doctor. And we usually trust our GP enough not to take offense if he says to us, hopefully gently, I will be the person who decides whether it's really serious. But when it comes to our own spiritual condition, we are all world experts. And the Apostle Paul wants to come to us as a spiritual physician to, to help us to see ourselves in a quite different light. Remember the old days, ladies of a certain age, you saw something in the shop and you said to the person, can I take this out so I can see the color in, in natural light? And when you took it out of the artificial light, it, it actually looked different. You said, that's not for me. But we live our lives in clothes, don't we, in the artificial light of the times in which we live. And the same was true in antiquity of these Corinthians to whom Paul was speaking here, a society not too dissimilar from our own. And here he's coming to them, and he's, he's wanting them to see this alienation in its true light. And you'll notice, although his big burden is reconciliation, he in the background here, he pinpoints some of the symptoms of our alienation. And it's not an alienation from the, the fruit of our labor. Uh, it's not even a, an alienation internationally. It's an alienation from God. And he wants to emphasize this because, of course, most people don't feel alienated from God any more than they feel particularly sick. I know it's nothing serious, doctor, but I've just these little symptoms, and I thought I should share them with you, and you allow Him to be the decide. And you may find yourself in a serious physical condition, and you want to take His counsel. So, what if the same is true spiritually? Well, here is the Apostle Paul as a spiritual physician, and uh, he gives us little hints here about what some of the symptoms might be of our deepest alienation, because he wants us to see it's an alienation from God, and it's that alienation that causes all the other alienations in our lives. And it has, it has little symptoms. Uh, it has a symptom in relationship to, to how we think about ourselves. And he puts his finger in this just in a little phrase he uses as he's looking back on his own pre-Christian life. He says, do you notice in, in verse 15 that before we became Christians, we lived for ourselves? That is to say, we were self-oriented. We were self-obsessed. And interestingly, we saw everything out of a center in ourselves, and we do that, don't we? 
We think of everything as though we, we cannot even imagine a world without our existence because we think of everything out of a center uh, in ourselves. And uh, in that sense, it shouldn't surprise us that one of the great maladies of our age is the quest for the self. Uh, that's, uh, that's what our governments are spending money on. We've got to help our youngsters discover themselves. And we've got to tell them it's not in the clothes they wear, it's, it's, uh, it's not in the homes they come from, it's not the money they have, it's not their education. Well, what is it? You see, Paul understands that this human quest for self-identity is actually ultimately bankrupt so long as we deny the fact that we were actually made as the image of God and for God. We can we can go on the quest for self for the rest of our lives and never find ourselves. Incidentally, have you found yourself? Have you found yourself? And it's so interesting, isn't it, as this has become the big project of the 21st century, the project of the self. There has been this explosion of youngsters who have no idea who they are, this sense of alienation. And of course, there is a sense of alienation, because unless we, unless we return to look into the face of God and begin to reflect His image, we'll, we'll, we'll never find out who we really are. We're in a quest, as Jesus said, to save our own lives. And Jesus says, whoever seeks to save his own life is going to lose it, because the salvation of your own life never resides in yourself. But so long as I fail to see this, says the Apostle Paul, we're just living for ourselves. That's all there is. But then he says there's another symptom, and he puts his finger on this. He says, actually, this, this alienation from God manifests itself in the way that we, we look at others. He says, before I became a Christian, I looked at other people simply from a worldly point of view. And that, that was what was injected into… That was, that was the prescription in my lenses, and uh, that's our instinct, isn't it? You see a man lying in the street, how do you think about him? You think about him according to your, your sight, don't you? When did you last see a man or a woman lying in the street and think to yourself, oh my, that woman is the image of God, and look at how she has been so distorted? So, we just look at people from a worldly point of view, and, and we're almost reared to do that, aren't we? And Paul says, you know, at the end of the day, that's a symptom of the fact that we're alienated from God. Because when we look at others, our first thought is not to see them in the light of who God is and what God made them to be. And then, of course, in some ways, the most obvious indication of this today is that the alienation is not only inward and outward in that sense, but its, its simplest manifestation, he says, is in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, he says, before we became Christians, we thought about Him from a purely superficial, worldly point of view. 
the man in the street, the woman in the street, the boy or girl at school, do not give tuppence for the Lord Jesus Christ. You are far more likely to hear His name today as a curse word than as the object of worship. How could that possibly be an indication that I'm alienated from God for this very simple reason? Jesus is God's own Son. And not to view Jesus as who He really is, is the clearest expression of how far I am from knowing God and knowing God's heart and wanting God and loving God and wanting to serve God. I despise Jesus. I ignore Jesus. And you see, I come to the Apostle Paul, and I say to him, actually, I, I don't feel alienated from God at all. In fact, I, I've, got, I've got nothing against God. And he says, well, do you love His Son with all your heart? And uh, it's the question that gets into the conscience, because you don't, by nature. And so, he's saying, these are, these are the symptoms. I, I come to Paul, I come into Dr. Paul's office, and I say, I know there are some things that aren't quite right in my life, but basically I think I'm healthy, and, the, and I don't really have any symptoms that trouble me. And you know what your own doctor's like. You know, the, do, is it sore here? Oh, what a relief. Is it sore here? No, no, it's, it's, I'm fine, doctor. Is it sore here? Ooh! Because you see, he's already seen the symptoms, and he's leading you to where they are. And in the background, as I say here, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's showing us some of the symptoms of our need for reconciliation. But then you notice the second thing. He wants to focus our attention on the remedy. If these are the symptoms, what is his remedy? Notice what he says here. Here is the heart of the remedy. It's in verse 19. God did not count their trespasses against them. God did not count their trespasses against them. Now, if you're a Christian, you could have many conversations with people and explain to them their alienation from God, their rebellion against God, their sin against God, their distance from God, and then point to this text, and they would say, well, that's what I've always believed. God doesn't count our sins. So, doesn't it? We may count other people's sins. That's why we have these prisons in Scotland. But God doesn't count our sins against us. You notice that's exactly what Paul says. He's very precise. He does not say God does not count men's sins. Actually, he says God does count men's sins. So, if God does count men's sins, but doesn't count men's sins against them. Against whom does he count men's sins? There's a choice here. Either he counts, since he does count sins, either he counts my sins against me 
or I must ask, against whom then does, not, does God count my sins in order that He may not count them against me? And the answer, of course, is in these verses. He says, for our sake, God made Him, that is, the Lord Jesus, to be our sin, although He had no sin of His own, in order that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this, this word reconcile, reconciliation, uh, has, has it, as its basic kind of root in the language Paul writes in uh, of the idea of a change being made, or, or even better, of an exchange being made. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. In fact, it's, the, it's really the message of the whole Bible, that we may be reconciled to God because God has made an exchange. And it's pinpointed in verse 21, isn't it? The exchange is this, God made Jesus to become sin. He placed my sin on Jesus, and He exchanged Jesus' righteousness for my sin so that I might actually become, as he says, the righteousness of God. It isn't that God doesn't count men's sins. It's that in Jesus Christ, God does not count men's sins against them, but against the Lord Jesus Himself. That was the principle of the Old Testament sacrifices, wasn't it? the way in which you brought these sacrifices, and in a sense you exchanged the death of that animal for the judgment of God on your own sins. It's what Isaiah saw when he looked into the future in those great words in Isaiah 53, and he sees this figure, a suffering servant who seems to come out of the darkness, and he, he says he would be wounded for transgressions that were ours. He would be bruised for iniquities that would be ours. Through His chastisement, we would experience peace. Through His being beaten, we would be made whole. It's what Paul speaks about in probably his first letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. Jesus experienced the curse of God, that is, alienation from God on the cross in order the blessing of forgiveness and new life might come to us. I mean, the wonderful thing about this is we can never get to the bottom of it, but a child can understand it. He gives me Jesus, and in exchange, Jesus takes my sin God does not count my sin against me. He counts my sin against Jesus. But you'll notice that Paul not only speaks about the fact that God has accomplished this reconciliation in Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 18. All this, he says, is from God who through Christ reconciled us, past tense, to Himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself on the cross, not counting their trespasses against them. And now He sent us with this word because 
Paul understands that that exchange needs to lead to another exchange. And so he appeals to people, receive the reconciliation. The reconciliation is there for you in Christ. He has taken our sins, and He's wanting to clothe us in His righteousness. But we, we need to receive the reconciliation. And this is such a big thing for Paul that he uses very emotional language, doesn't he? Um, he is an ambassador for Christ, he says, but he is an ambassador for Christ, verse 20, imploring people, imploring people. And the reason for that is he has seen deeply enough to understand that there is no, there is no pleasant alternative because we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. I was thinking during the week of a great hymn by Augustus Montague, top lady. Hymn writers don't have names like that any longer, do they? Augustus Montague, top lady, rock of ages, cleft for me. He has this line in it. Listen to this. Especially if you're somebody who ever weeps, not the labors of my hands could fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? Just think about that. Think about crying through all the rest of the days in your life. Think about crying through all eternity. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save, and you alone. Your tears your sorrow for your past does not contain the power to wash away the sin of the past. But Paul is saying, the blood that Christ shed on the cross washes away all the sins of those who come to Him. So, he's got symptoms that he puts his finger on. He's got uh, a remedy for our spiritual sickness in the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. And, and then, just notice in a moment, He has a prognosis. What happens if you receive Christ in this way? Notice what He says. He says, if anyone is in Christ, this is one of the most famous statements in the whole of the New Testament, if anyone is in Christ, in, in our versions, He is a new creation or perhaps a new creature in your version. Actually, what Paul really wrote was this, if any in Christ, new creation. And it's true. I, I think knowing people in the congregation, I think I could, I'm not going to call you up one by one and say, t t tell, tell us all how you experience this. Uh, you know the hymn of George Wade Robinson when he speaks about becoming a Christian believer and everything's seen in, a, in an entirely different light. It, it, everything seems to become new because you realize that you've seen them in artificial light 
And he says this, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something seen in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. You say, well, that, that's… Uh, I, I've known people who have argued that cannot possibly be true, and when you ask them, the reason they give for is because I've never experienced it. But of course, that's the point, isn't it? Something is seen in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am His. Christ is mine. It's as though God put a new prescription into the lenses through which you see everything, and you and you then realize that the gospel recenters you, it recenters the world, it recenters your worldview entirely upon the Lord Himself. And you realize you've been looking at the world through the wrong end of the telescope. You've been seeing things upside down. You've been looking at the world in the artificial light of our contemporaries' own understanding of it. And now in the light of Jesus Christ, everything, it all seems to become so clear. And, uh, well, there's another message here, but it's not for this morning. The most obvious indication of that is what He says so marvelously in verse 9. Now He says, we make it our aim to please Christ. Dear friends, I hope we all understand that on the cross, Jesus took our alienation. He took our alienation from God. Remember, He was meditating on Psalm 22, my God, why am I alienated from You? He experienced a kind of alienation from Himself. He, he goes on there, does the psalmist, to speak about what was Jesus' experience. I, I feel as though I am a worm and not a man, a kind of disintegration that took place. There are, there are little hints of this in His experience and His words when He speaks about the passion and what He was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. And men mock him and demean him, and he feels alienation from his fellow human beings. God made him to be sin with all the experience of that alienation in order that we might be reconciled. And you see, because this has happened to Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle, it's hardly surprising that He appeals to us, oh, don't you see this? And if you're beginning to feel this and see this and know this and understand that you've been looking at the gospel the wrong way around altogether, then won't you come and receive the reconciliation, which means receiving Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ, and then discovering that you have walked into the new creation. The old has gone, and new life has come. May God give us all that understanding.
and that experience. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love for us, that though we were far from You, indeed, although we despised You, were indifferent to Your Son, had no interest in His gospel, did not in any sense feel that we were far away from You because we really scarcely ever thought about You. We pray that You would bring us to see the world, ourselves, one another, the Lord Jesus, and Yourself clearly in the light of Your Word. And we pray that since our Lord Jesus Christ has given everything in order to reconcile us to You, that Your Spirit will help us to give everything to Him because we are reconciled through You. Hear our prayers, we ask. Help us, save us, change us, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name.